It's not one of the favorite psalms, but it's given to us by God, and um, I trust it'll do us good. As Liam says, uh, we just finished Zechariah. This is a kind of a one-off, and uh, on these one-offs, going to try and fit some psalms in, and uh, how old will we all be if we make it Psalm 150? We'll find out. Um, And then next week, we begin a new series in the book of Ephesians. We're going to look through uh, the letter of Ephesians. We've been doing some work on that this week as well. Really excited about that. And uh, uh, so we look forward to that. But let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you for what we've just sung. Plenteous grace with you is found. Grace to cover all our sins. Oh, we thank you for this. And we thank you for giving us these songs, these prayers in your word that let us know that you understand the whole range of our human experience. And we pray that you'd make these words precious to each one of us. You draw our gaze now away from ourselves, away from our problems and to you and give us fresh grace for whatever challenges we may face in this coming week. We ask this in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Psalm 5, page 544, if you uh, have a church Bible, page 544. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my sighing. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait in expectation. You're not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men. The Lord abhors. But I, by your great mercy, will come into your house. In reverence will I bow down towards your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make straight your way before me. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their throat is filled with destruction. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they speak deceit. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may rejoice in you. For surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. This is God's word. Now, why is it that we find prayer so hard? Why is it that generally when it comes to uh, gatherings in the church for prayer, the numbers are down? Now, why is that? John Piper suggests uh, in one of his books that it's because we forget that we're living in a war zone. Uh, When we fail to recognize that, prayer just becomes 
an optional thing. Um, prayer malfunctions if we, treat, if we treat it like a sort of domestic intercom where we call from the lounge to the kitchen for uh, a few more treats from the fridge to be brought to us. If prayer is just that, then it, well, it, it, that's not what it is. When we understand that it's a, we're in a spiritual war zone, and we're under attack, that prayer is the walkie-talkie that calls in uh, God's mighty power and forces, well, suddenly prayer becomes much more significant and much more relevant. And we know this is true, don't we? I mean, there are times when all is well and uh, the conflict is elsewhere, and the truth is our prayer life becomes less, less urgent, less frequent, less specific, uh, less, less real. It's when the pressure is on, isn't it? Particularly when we see that there's a spiritual battle going on in the lives of those that we love, our our friends and our family, or even in our own life. Well, then suddenly um, we want to pick up the walkie-talkie and call for help from headquarters. Isn't that the case? Well, Psalm 5 is a psalm for people who realize that the battle is on. We'll not understand this psalm if, you know, we know nothing of the spiritual battle that's taking place around us. If we think that life is a beach holiday, then actually you're going to find some elements of this psalm quite um, unpleasant. It's strong meat. It's, it's digestible really only for those who, who've experienced the attack of wickedness on their lives, have uh, experienced evil. King David knew that he was in a serious struggle against bloodthirsty men, Uh, deceitful men. They were close by. They were saying one thing. He knew they meant something entirely different. Their intent was uh, to take him to the grave. And actually, when we're in those circumstances, I think prayer is not a struggle. Prayer becomes quite easy in that situation. And there he is, at the beginning of the psalm, he's on the morning prayer watch. Look back at verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my sighing. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait in expectation. David is up first thing in the morning, and his first concern is prayer. Look at the different expressions of prayer here. It is in his sighing, verse 1. Have you had a morning like that? Have you had a morning like that where you you went to bed sighing and you woke up and you're sighing, first thing. The the weight of life is just pressing in on you and you kind of wake up and your first first, uh, expression to the outside world is, you had a day like that? One or two maybe. David says, consider my sighing. And he's it's not just sighing, he's he's crying. Verse 2. Listen to my cry. And then it takes shape in the words of this psalm. See, our communication to God is much deeper than just words. In fact, we can actually stand up, use lots of words, and not actually be praying. There's a huge temptation in public, isn't it, just to get up and and say things. And we're not actually engaged in true prayer. Words, cries, sighs, 
don't know where this is going to encourage you today, but this is normal Christian experience. Is that encouraging? I don't know, some people seem to live uh, in a higher plane of total victory all the time, and uh, 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 their, their song is ever joy and happiness. And Well, that's actually not everybody's experience. It wasn't King David's experience. Here's the encouragement. He knew days of sighing, crying. Isn't that good to know? This is normal uh, experience. In fact, it's almost as if David was uh, aware of what the Apostle Paul would write in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. See, when we trust in Jesus, he gives us his spirit. And, and one of the things that the spirit does in our lives, it says in Romans eight twenty-six, is that the spirit himself intercedes for us with groans. The words cannot express. Even when we can't even quite get the words out and we're groaning before the Lord, the spirit takes that, turns that into prayer. Now, why on earth does David have the boldness to say such a thing to God? Well, look at verse 2. It's because of his personal relationship with God. He calls him my king, my God. That's why David is so confident to call on God to hear his prayer. The Lord is his king. The Lord is his God. The Lord and the Lord alone is the one that uh, he's ultimately looking to in his distress. I mean, David's job as the king of Israel was to hear the cries of his subjects and to respond with protection and help. But David knows that actually the real king that can do this work is God alone. And he turns himself in his cries to God and his dependency to God. And you know, if we too have entered into the kingdom of God by putting our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we too can have the same confidence. If we're trusting the Lord Jesus, who is in this unique relationship with God as his Father, we enter into the same confidence. We can say as we trust in Christ, Oh, Father, you are my Father. You are my God. He's our God by his covenant promises, by his promises, by his blood. We, are, we, we have the same confidence that David has here in Psalm 5. Now, if my children um, start crying in pain, well, as a parent, what do you first thing you do? You listen to the cry, don't you? Because there's that fakey crying, isn't there? Fakey crying, hard as I'm not interested, you know. Let them toughen up. My wife's a bit more gentler than that, but you know. But then there's that real cry. There's real pain. Now, now when there's real pain, there's a real cry. You drop everything. You run. And David prays with that confidence that his cry goes from his heart straight up to the heart of God. And in Jesus Christ, we can have exactly the same confidence. And so David can assert in verse 3, In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. Great confidence, isn't it? In the morning, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait in expectation. He really can't go into the day without entrusting his concerns to God. The issues are too serious. The need is too great. God needs to hear his prayer. And notice from verse 3 that involves some preparation. I lay my request before you. He comes deliberately. Uh, he lays the matters out before the Lord at the start of the day. And he prays with sort of an expectancy, a watchful expectancy. And he says, I wait in expectation. He pray, his prayer is like an arrow and having fired it, he's watching to see where the arrow goes and where it lands. 
He's praying each morning with this prayerful expectancy that God is going to hear his prayer and that God is going to act and he's, and he's watching to see what God's going to do. And I think there's probably a correction here for us, isn't it? Uh, you know, some have questioned the legalism of this you know, daily quiet time, getting up in the morning, reading your Bible and praying. I just noticed from here that, what well, from David, he, he knew that really it was his only option. It was his best option. Uh, he needed each morning to personally come before God and, and rest his, his problems, his anxieties before the Lord's. And you know, if we don't pray or if we kind of rush into God's presence without humility and then rush out without any hope of an answer, uh, we're missing out in, in this engagement of prayer that, that David is talking about here. And the truth is, is if I don't go to bed at a reasonable time, I won't get up in the morning to pray. The battle for morning prayer is lost or won at night time. And uh, there were so many encores last night at the praise gathering that it was a late night. But it was a great night. And uh, so this morning it was a bit more of a struggle to get up. And that's the truth, isn't it? Late to bed, hard to get up, hard to pray. Now the NIV doesn't really help us here but because it fails to translate in verse 4 the word for. We need to know the God we are addressing. And David knows that, that God will hear his prayer, for God is the one who is the judge of the wicked. That's the point of verses 4 to 6. So verse 4, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With, the, with you the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men the Lord abhors. Now he's going to get to his requests, right? He's got, he's got this terrible problem. He's going to have three specific requests we're going to come to. Hold your horses. Three points are coming. And, 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 and yet, before he gets there, he knows that what he's praying about is exactly what God's about. He knows the God that he's dealing with. He knows the character of the God that he's praying to. God is a holy God and he hates sin. The wicked, he says, just, you know, if the wicked knock on God's door to his house, God's not even opening the door. The wicked are not welcome to come into his house and hang with God. No, God's not entertained or amused by evil. He doesn't let them in for a a little bit and then head them out. No, God can have nothing to do with that. He can't stand boastful people. He can't stand arrogant people. He hates all who do wrong. Now, we will never understand how amazing the good news is that God loves us until we understand that actually God hates us because of our sin, right? If all we hear is God is love, we go, well, yeah, I'm a pretty lovable person, yeah? Of course. We need to understand this. God hates Sin. Actually, he hates sinners, it says here. He hates all who do evil. It's not just that he dislikes them. He has a hatred of them, according to this psalm. You hate all who do wrong. I can't think of anything worse than being hated by God. Can you? I can't think of anything worse than that. And David goes on to describe his wicked enemies. You know, no truth in their mouth. Their words and mouths are just like an open grave to destroy the unsuspecting. Now, who are these uh, terrible people? 
there's probably a definite group, maybe even have access into David's court that he's aware are just there and they're bowing and scraping, but behind their hand they're saying all these other things about the king. But you know, the shocking thing comes, as we saw in our reading from the New Testament, from Romans chapter 3, that this description of people whose uh, throats are, uh, are like open graves is used, wait for this, for all humanity. Uh, whether you're a Jewish person, whether you're a non-Jewish person, Romans chapter 3, Paul says, we're all sinners. And, and he uses this incredible anatomy description of how wicked we are. It is an unappealing, unattractive picture of humanity. And the point is, if you've ever found yourself lying, if you've ever found yourself to be evasive with the truth, uh, bordering on deceitful, then the, the cap fits. That's us. We've rebelled against God that we tell lies, that we are deceitful, is, is, is evidence that we're rebels against God, we're enemies of God, and we've got a serious sin problem. God destroys those who tell lies. There's a horrific thing. Have you ever lied? God destroys those who tell lies. I don't wonder, uh, have you ever considered your life in the sober reality that God is the judge, that he hates all sin? Is there any hope here? Well, I want to say, yes, there's wonderful hope. And it's there in verse 7. In verse 7, he speaks of entering into God's house. So verse 4, he says, with you, the wicked cannot dwell. The wicked can't enter your house, God. Verse 7, uh, he is going to enter God's house. Now, how is David going to enter God's house? Is it because David's a good man, a moral man, an upright man, a man who never lied, and ever, a man who never acted deceitfully? Well, they look at verse 7. That's not the basis on which he comes, is it? He enters by God's great mercy. But I, by your great mercy will come into your house. That, that phrase, great mercy, is uh, in the Hebrew language kind of almost a parallel to the New Testament term grace. I, because of your grace, because of your mercy, I can approach you, God, because you are a God who has great mercy. Our sins are many, but God's grace is greater that's what we just sang in our hymn before uh, we began looking at this passage, wasn't it? Plenteous grace to cover all of my sin. Abundant and plentiful. And it's granted to us, not on the basis of who we are, but on the basis of who Jesus Christ is. As Jesus went to the cross the righteous, the sinless one in the place of sinners and unrighteous people. If we cling hold of Christ, if we trust him, if we turn from our sins and we cling to Christ to receive his forgiveness, then that's the basis on which we enter into the house of God. There are only two groups of people in the world. There are the wicked and the forgiven. Do you hear that? It's not like there's good people and bad people. All wicked. But there's only two groups. The wicked and those who've been forgiven for their wickedness. 
There are those who are under God's wrath and those who are under God's amazing grace and mercy. And one of the aspects of forgiven people uh, is that we become worshippers of God. That's why uh, last night was such a joy to be there in the Asher Hall worshipping God together. Um, in reverence will I bow down towards your holy temple. That's why it's a joy to be here today, isn't it? To be worshipping God amongst his people. Because we know what great mercy has been extended to us. What amazing grace we've been shown in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so on the basis of God's character, on the basis of God's uh, grace, David makes three requests in this psalm. Request number one is guidance in verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make straight your way before me. If there's a sight that makes a parent's heart jump into their mouth, it is the sight of seeing some toddler, apparently on his own, running towards a road in which there are cars just driving at 50, 60 miles an hour, just firing backwards like this, and a toddler running to the road. It's just like, ah! you're driving along, you see a kid running towards you. It's a horrible thing. And the only thing that, 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 that brings relief and peace is when suddenly a parent appears and grabs the toddler's hand and guides them safely across the road and across the danger. And David, in great humility... Like that a little toddler puts his hand in the hand of, of his king and his God and he says, lead me, O Lord. Lead me because of my enemies. He's in treacherous territory. He doesn't know what's going on. He can't control all the events. And so he puts his hand into the hand of, of his God and he says, lead me, O Lord. And also he, he prays that the, the Lord would not only just keep him and lead him from these enemies, but also prevent him from becoming one of the wicked people. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Isn't this what the Lord Jesus taught us to pray? Deliver us from evil and lead us not into temptation. When we're facing opposition, when we're facing um, trials, it is always a temptation to choose wrong strategies to deal with the threat. We can normally come up with a few options that actually would not be that pleasing and godly to God, but we think it would be maybe the prudent thing to do. And David says, no, Lord, lead me in your righteousness. I can't imagine how hard it would be to be a prime minister or an ancient king. Really, who around you is going to tell you the truth? Uh, who's really going to tell you? Well, maybe as a politician you might get it, but as an ancient king you might not. Everyone around you is saying, oh, David, marvelous plan. You're great. You're the best. You're the best, right? No one's going to say, you're a loser. No one's going to say that. Never hear the truth around you. No one really tells you to your face. They just go away and write a book about how bad you are, you know? Was an advisor to the prime minister. Oh, yeah, very close to him. But he was rubbish. He was rubbish, you know. Didn't say that to his face, but they write books afterwards. Well, King David knew about that sort of environment, and so he prays, lead me in your righteousness. Make your way straight before me, Lord. I need your guidance. I need your counsel. Lead me through this. So the first prayer request is guidance. The second, in verse 10, is judgment. Declare them guilty, O God. 
Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. That the flattering tongue of these enemies is deadly. Their throats are an open grave. They're bent on destruction. And so what David prays is, Lord, expose them. Let their evil be revealed. Declare them guilty. And he prays that they will collapse under their own false words and plans. Let, let their intrigue be their downfall. And then lastly, he prays that they would just be banished and cast out. Now that's strong stuff, isn't it? That's why we don't often sing sort of songs like this. It's strong meat. Should we ever pray a prayer like this? That's a question to ask, isn't it? Now, I think there's a few things we need to remember here. Number one, this is David the king. He's not just any old person. He's the king. He's the judge of Israel, and we are not. Secondly, David is, is not praying this for personal reasons. Um, look at the end of verse 10. For they have rebelled against you. This is the root of David's concern. Uh, they're ultimately God's enemies. And I, I'm not sure that this is an appropriate prayer for us to pray if someone's just slighted us. Do you know what I mean? If someone slighted you, I don't think it's a good thing to say, Lord, banish them! Let their intrigue be their downfall. We are to forgive our enemies, the Lord Jesus says. But when it comes to God's enemies, it's not our position to forgive, is it? And what David is actually praying for here is the overthrow of evil. Now, is that not something we all long for? When a brutal dictator is brought down, we rejoice. When a serial killer uh, is caught and imprisoned for life, is there not relief in the community where he's found? Finally, banished, removed, the threat is gone. And on Judgment Day, that will be the final outcome. All sin, all evil will be exposed, will collapse, and will be banished. And, and, and again, this is what we're praying for when we say in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. As we considered uh, last week, we're saying, Lord, overthrow all who are in opposition uh, to you. If fully establish your kingdom. And then at the end of the psalm, David declares his confidence in God and asks for God's protection. Look at verse 11. And 12, but let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them, let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. For surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. The danger is not forgotten in these verses and you can see all these defensive words like you know refuge shield he, he's still thinking about the danger but here, here the psalmist kind of breaks free from his loneliness sometimes when the weight is upon us we feel like we're the only one don't we we're the only one nobody cares nobody knows I'm all on my own this is terrible and he breaks out of that loneliness in verse 11 as he looks around him and says but let all who take refuge in you be glad See, the forgiven are not just worshippers uh, on their own. They, they're a joyful people amongst a multitude. And David urges all who take refuge in God to rejoice as they consider their blessings. Now, we do live our life in a spiritual war zone. The Bible's clear about this. But a Christian is one that knows great joy. 
Because of all the blessings of God that we can know. Here's a few blessings here. Verse 11, that God is our refuge. That God is our protection. And verse 12, that the covering of God's grace is like a shield around us. Has God not promised us that he will never leave us? That he will never forsake us? Has Jesus not said this? No one will pluck them out of my hand. No one. These blessings are true. But in the time of conflict and threats, it's hard to enjoy them. And, and, and there are several means of grace that God gives us to, to take hold of these truths that will help us experience Joy in a time of trial. And uh, just three things to finish with. First of all, gathering together with fellow believers with, in church. Notice that this prayer is a psalm to be sung by choirs at the top and uh, to be sung with flutes. Thanks, musicians. Uh, he's facing this, but a means of grace for him is to gather with God's people in the worship of God. Um, it is an encouragement, isn't it? When we are feeling low, when we are anxious, uh, when we don't want to get out of our bed for our sighing, my friends, Sunday morning, get out of bed, come to church. This is when you need to come, isn't it? It's when we need each other. Encourage each other. Can I encourage you this morning to look around you? And if you notice people are looking sad, there are little telltale signs I've discovered when people are looking sad. Uh, we actually normally sort of put on a good face to begin with. When you talk to them, it doesn't take long to realize that there's a heaviness of heart, is it? Well, there's our opportunity after we have our formal gathering to encourage one another. Encourage those with heavy hearts this day. Another means of grace is to start each day with the morning prayer watch. We need this daily fellowship with God through prayer. We miss out when we don't lay hold of it. That day by day, we get up in the morning and we lay out our cares and our burdens before the Lord. And we look to Him for strength. In the morning, O Lord. You hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you. And thirdly, the habit of recalling God's mercy and amazing grace. That's what the psalmist does here, doesn't he? Surrounded by troubles, he recalls God's amazing grace, his great mercy, that he is the refuge, that his grace and favor is upon him. He recalls that to his mind. You know, in New Testament terms, he recalls the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of God's goodness to him in the gospel. And these are very precious means when those who are under suffering, opposition, and struggles, even to the threat of their lives, can seek grace for this day. Oh, you may be worried about what's going to happen in about four or five days' time. Don't worry about that. Just, just seek grace for today. This morning, Lord. Can God take care of you this next day? Don't worry about next week, next month, several years. Don't worry about that. Just this day. And tomorrow there'll be fresh grace to trust Him for them as well. Let's pray.